Good morning, everybody. And during this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today we have, asked, uh, we have with us um, Belinda Croson. Um, welcome, Belinda. It's nice to see you. Um, on the topic of Lethbridge ghost stories, uh, Belinda is a storyteller, tour guide, and author who researches and shares Lethbridge's history and stories. She is the president of the Lethbridge Historical Society, for whom she has written several books, and she also sits as a member of Lethbridge City Council. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you, Annelise, for introducing me. So yes, my presentation is called A Bump in the Night, and it is on ghost stories of Lethbridge. I think people might be interested to know that I have no interest in ghosts at all. What I love are ghost stories, because ghost stories are folk tales. They are the stories of our community. And while I won't do it today, I could actually share stories with you of different communities, and you could probably guess which Southern Alberta community it is if you know their history, because our ghost stories we tell are very reflective of our community. The other thing I love about ghost stories is they test us. I mean, we're doing this during the middle of the day, but when you sit around a campfire at night and you tell ghost stories, it's a way to actually test how much fear you can handle in a safe environment. The other beautiful thing about ghost stories is they're about storytelling. And there's been a reason that our ancestors sat around for thousands of years telling stories. It is part of how we connect and part of what we do. And so let me begin. I'm going to begin at the Fritzig pool. So if we could bring up that slide, that would be wonderful. There are two things you probably shouldn't have at the same time. That is a husband and a boyfriend. Mrs. Lazarick broke that, broke that rule. And she convinced her boyfriend to kill her husband. Wazel Chilbeter waited between Hardyville and Lethbridge for Alex Lazarick to come home from work. When the two men met, Alex grabbed a stick and hit Wazel over the head. Wazel shot Alex three times, leaving him, as he thought, dead there between Hardyville and Lethbridge. Incredibly, Lazarick managed to crawl back to Hardyville for help. He was brought into the Galt Hospital, and before he died, he announced that Wazel Chilbeter was his murderer. Wazel was arrested and tried for the murder of Alex Lazarus, and his sentence was hanging. The gallows were constructed with the grave underneath so that when Wazel was actually hanged, he would drop down into his own grave, where they quick-limed and buried him. Now, where did this burial happen? In the stable yards of the mounted police. And today, we believe that Fritzig Pool is built on top of the site where Wazel Chobeter was hanged. They say, if you see strange bubbles in the water, it's just Wazel saying hello. Now, if you're wondering, the only thing Wazel was really upset with after he was um, found guilty of the murder was that Mrs. Lazarus got away with it all. We move now to our next slide, which is a building I know quite well, the Old Galt Hospital. There are many stories about the Old Galt Hospital, now part of the Galt Museum and Archives. Likely, the best known is George Bailey. George Bailey was a 60-year-old farmer who unfortunately perished in the Old Galt Hospital. Now, it's important to know that when the Galt Hospital was originally built in 1910, there was no elevator. People had to be carried up the stairs to the operating room or down the stairs to the morgue. Finally, in 1929-1930, Lethbridge City Council expended money to expand the building. 
and when the building was expanded, an elevator was added. The elevator is part of that best known story. In February 1933, George Bailey came to the Galt's Hospital for exploratory surgery. He was put onto a gurney on the main floor, pushed down the hallway, and then onto the elevator. That's when everything went horribly wrong. When the bed was halfway on and the doors of the elevator wide open, the floor of the elevator started to rise. Soon George and the bed were caught and he was caught and then dangled above the elevator shaft. He slipped through, landing on his head on the floor below. When they got down to him, he was still alive, but he was shuffling around that room downstairs. He died later that night. Some people have declared that George has never left the building. Somebody whose office was in the basement reported hearing shuffling feet come up to his door, but when he went to the door, there was no one there. Other people have reported seeing blue lights floating down the hallway and strange shadows watching them work. A woman who came into the hospital to have a baby, not long after George had passed away, actually recalled meeting George. Her room where she had the baby was on the top floor of the hospital, and she came down to the main floor to the room that was called the sunroom so she could have a break. When she went to go back upstairs, she pushed for the elevator to go upstairs, but instead it took her downstairs. When the doors opened, she looked outside the elevator and realized she could see a man standing there. She didn't think much about it until she realized she could see right through the man. She hurriedly pushed the button to get back up the elevator. And when she got to the top floor, she rushed over to the nurse's station to tell the nurses what she had seen. And the nurse calmly replied, oh, that's just George. When he gets lonely, he brings people downstairs. So your hope is that George never gets lonely when you visit the Galt. Now, as strange as it might sound, George is not the only person to have fallen down that old elevator at the Galt Hospital. In the 1930s, Agnes was training at the Galt School of Nursing. One evening, she was working on the main floor and the lights were dimmed because it was nighttime. She pushed the elevator button and waited for the doors to open. When the doors opened, she stepped into the dark elevator. Unfortunately, while the doors had opened, the elevator wasn't actually there. And when she stepped in, she stepped into empty space, falling down a floor onto the elevator. She called for help. People came and found her. They found a ladder and they got her out. When they got her up, they simply checked to make sure she had no broken bones and sent her back to work. She was, of course, only a student nurse at the time, so they weren't too worried about her health. Now, the Galt has a lot of other stories. One of my favorite stories is actually one I experienced that I could never explain. I was giving a tour one day to a bunch of Navy, uh, Navy cadets, and I took them upstairs to the old children's ward. The children's ward had a lot of various stories about it. People have seen two children, one that they say is a girl around seven years old, and one a boy about 10, 12 years old. People have seen them waving out the windows. People have um, seen them or heard them talking in that room. So I took the Navy cadets up to that room and I told them the stories. As we were preparing to leave, I shut the light off. It turned itself back on. I shut the light off and it turned itself back on. After the third attempt, I simply looked at the kids and said, well, obviously they want the lights on tonight and we're leaving. So I locked the door, shut all the other lights off on the, on the top floor, went down with the kids and we continued our tour. About an hour later, as we're finishing the tour and the parents are picking up the kids, the leader says to me, you know, 
he stayed to help me lock up. So we locked up the buildings, we set the alarm and we went outside. And he said to me, I wonder if that light is still on. So we both looked up at the room and as we looked up at the dark alarmed museum, the light turned back on. I could not make myself go back in that night. I did go back the next day. I don't know what happened, but the light turned on as we were watching the building. So if you're ever at the Galt Museum, think about George and the others who might be there with you. Another building in Lethbridge that has a lot of stories is the Yates Theatre. Now, of course, many of you know the Yates Theatre, and we'll move to that slide. The Yates Theatre has more than its fair share of ghost stories, and here are just a few. People driving past the theatre have observed visitors in the lobby long after the theatre has closed. There's also been people who've reported a mysterious singer who they hear from the empty stage, and when they go to try to find the voice, there is no one there. One evening, a staff member came across several young girls playing Ring Around the Rosie in the hallway of the theater long after the theater was closed. She wanted to tell them that they had to leave when the girls raced off and entered Pebble Beach. Now, those of you who remember Pebble Beach, this was the old storage area that used to be under the seats, which has now since been removed. If you know anything about Pebble Beach, there's only one door in and one door out. So she followed them in, but when she went into Pebble Beach, they were nowhere to be found. The girls had simply disappeared. All right, we'll leave the Yates and move over to the old LCI, the Hamilton Junior High building. Several ghost stories are told of the old LCI, Hamilton Junior High. Now the legend has it that a janitor committed suicide there and that this is supposed to account for all the stories. A teacher had to go in on the weekend to work at the school and he had to bring his young daughter with him. He promised her that if she sat quietly while he was marking, they could play hide and seek before they left the school. When she went to hide, her father was surprised at how difficult it was to find her. As usually, she was very young, the game was over quickly and she gave away her hiding place without even knowing it. He searched and he searched and he finally found her on the gym stage, wrapped up in one of the curtains. When her dad asked her how she had discovered that hiding place, she told him, oh, dad, the nice man showed me this hiding place, but he disappeared just before you showed up. Now that's not the only story of the old LCI. A teacher was working late at the school grading papers when she noticed a man walk into her classroom. She assumed that it was David, the teacher who had the classroom next door. So she simply said to him without really looking up, just a moment, let me finish this paragraph and I'll be right with you. When she got done marking that paragraph and she looked up, there was no one in the door. So she assumed he had simply gone back to his own classroom. She went up to look for him. But though she searched his classroom and that hallway, she could find no one. Finally, being curious, she went downstairs to see what had happened. As she went downstairs, she found caretakers down working on the main floor and she'd asked them if they'd seen David. They informed her that they and she were the only ones in the building that night. David was not there. Another female teacher was working late in the school. While sitting at her desk, she actually heard a voice in the hallway call her name. She left her classroom and went out to the hallway to where she heard the voice. No one was there. But she then heard the same voice calling her name a little further down the hallway. So she followed the voice. Over time, that voice led her all around the school. Finally, in frustration and with a little bit of fear, she went to the in-out board and discovered she was the only person in the school that night. 
Now, the ghost of the old LCI, the old Hamilton Junior High, is supposed to make his presence known by cigar smoke. And it's actually quite common that you'll have ghosts who will leave a smell that you're supposed to recognize. Teachers knew that the smell of the smoke, sorry, pipe smoke, not cigar smoke, was the way you knew that that ghost was around. A male teacher did not believe in the ghost. So one day he brought in a Ouija board to see what he could do. His colleagues told him he was crazy. The principal told him not to do it, but he did it anyways. When he got out to his car after work, it smelled like pipe smoke. And when he got home that night, his house smelled like pipe smoke. He was so worried about what had happened that the next day when he went to school, he apologized to the ghost and it's claimed he never smelled the pipe smoke again. I think that's a good clue for all of us. When things mm -hmm. go bad, make sure you apologize. Now, not surprisingly, hospitals have more than their fair share of ghost stories, as does the old St. Michael's Hospital. So we'll move now to St. Michael's. St. Michael's is said to have had one of the most comforting nicest, kindest ghost ever, who was best known as Sister, and she was said to have been one of the nuns who had helped to run the hospital. This kind nun, dressed all in white, would sit with people who needed comforting, and she would provide comfort and support to patients there in the old St. Michael's. In the morning, the patients would thank the nurses for arranging the nun to visit them. The nurses, of course, would tell them, you're welcome, but they knew that no such visit had ever been arranged. If a patient in the old St. Michael's needed help, it is said that sister would let staff know by moving the curtains around a bed and drawing their attention to some issue. If medicine was left on a shelf or medicine was out of date, you would actually find it on the floor, pushed off by sister to make sure that the nurses knew not to use that medicine. Sometimes it's said that the medicine wasn't just dropped, but actually moved to a different location. One nurse found an IV bag on the floor by the phone. She said it was quite a ways away from the medical room. She returned it to the storage room, only to find it once again out by the phone. She decided to check the date on the medical bag, and sure enough, it was expired. That day, sister really wanted to get their attention. Now, people have wondered, when they knocked down the old St. Michael's, did sister leave with the building? According to the stories I've heard, they say no. And they even say that sister is still around. One staff, and of course this staff would not give me her name to use, fell asleep on night shift, which is probably why she wouldn't give me her name. And she stated that someone wrapped her strongly over the head to wake her up. It seems sister is still at work. All right. Now all of my ghost stories aren't just from Lethbridge. I wanna share you one about the ghost train. The ghost train was a train that, between Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. And this story is from the early 20th century, and as I said, took place on that track between Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. One dark night, as the train was leaving Medicine Hat, the crew looked ahead and saw a blazing light coming towards them. It was another train on a collision course with them. The engineer yelled at the fireman to jump from the train, but there was no time. Before they could react, the light was on top of them. Incredibly, there was no collision. The other train veered to the side and flew right by them, its whistle blowing. The engineer and fireman could see out the window of their engine, and they could see the passengers of the other train staring out the window back at them. But that was utterly impossible. They were on a single track of the railway, and there was no other track for that engine to be on. 
And when the engineer looked carefully at the other train, it was possible to see that that train was actually floating past them on nothing at all. Both staff were greatly spooked, as you can imagine, and agreed never to tell anyone the story. The engineer was so upset, he refused to go on night shift for a week or two, instead choosing to work around the rail yard. The fireman continued to work, which meant he had to work with a different engineer. But he continued to work that same shift between Medicine Hat and Lethbridge. And on that same set stretch of track, he and the new engineer witnessed the exact same ghost train. That was enough for the fireman. He switched to another route. However, a few months later, he learned of an accident on that very spot where he had seen the ghost train with the two engineers. The Spokane Flyer and a Lethbridge passenger train collided and seven people were killed, including both of the engineers of the two trains. And both of the engineers were the two engineers who had seen the ghost train with the firemen. Only the firemen who had refused to ever do that route again survived seeing the ghost train and not being killed as part of the accident. Now, this was actually told by the firemen to a man named Andy Stasco, who was in the CPR here in Lethbridge for decades and a member of the Lethbridge Historical Society. And he was the one who reported that story in some of our old newsletters. I know that one of the sponsors of SACPA is the University of Lethbridge, so I hope they won't get too angry when I tell some of their ghost stories as well. So we'll move now to the University of Lethbridge. The first one has to do with University Hall. A new employee had started at the university. And for the most part, she loved her new job. But every so often, she had this feeling of great disapproval, as if somebody was watching her and was angry and upset. This would go on and off quite often. One day, though, she was down in the cafeteria, and this being years ago, this is when the cafeteria was on the sixth floor of the University Hall. And as she was getting her food and she was there with the cashier, all of a sudden, she felt this great disapproval and she shivered. And the cashier looked at her and said, did you see him or did you feel him? And she looked at the cashier and said, what are you talking about? And the cashier repeated, did you feel him? And explained that a young man had suicided there in University Hall and that his presence was still to be felt among people who worked and resided in University Hall. And that was explained to her the feeling that she'd expect. Another place in the university which is said to have a ghost is the new library. And it's said that it occurs in the lowest level of the library. And if you're down there in the stacks, people report seeing a strange man sitting and staring at them. In fact, some people have been so creeped out by this man who just watches what they do that they have actually reported him to security. But before they can describe him, security actually stops him and says, does he look like this, 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 and this? And they're like, yeah. And the security will say, oh, don't worry. When you go back, he'll be gone. And each time that he is gone, but was he ever actually there? So there may be a ghost sitting down in the, old, in the new library building. Now, another place in the university which is said to have ghosts is the old residences in the basement of University Hall. People have reported all sorts of strange associations down there. People have heard high heels clicking down empty hallways. They have seen shadows at the far end of the hallways, and they have actually seen people walking down the hallway and to disappear into walls. There are even people who reported looking outside and seeing people walk past their windows feet and meters above the ground. Now, I've always wondered, okay, we're getting some strange feedback here. It's okay. okay. 
Okay, we'll keep going. All right, I get so into my ghost stories. When I hear weird noises like that, I start wondering. <laughs> All right, so while there's even more stories at the university, we'll switch to the YWCA and we'll bring up the picture of the old YWCA. In the 1950s, an old house on 6th Avenue was converted into residences for the YWCA. That house was later uh, torn down as the building was redeveloped and expanded. Several years ago, I had a few staff from the YWCA call me and ask if we could have coffee and talk about the ghost stories of their building. They had a lot of stories. A woman had been noted actually there hanging out in the elevator. A child is known to be playing in the daycare area. He is described as having curly hair and has been seen by several people. When people come back in the morning, they'll note that the toys have been moved around as if he's been down there playing by himself. Women and children seem a normal part for the YWCA. But the one thing they really had questions about was stories of a man who they would find throughout the YWCA. Now, one of the things I love about ghost stories, it actually ties into my historical research because I want to see if I can find anything about the building that might have been the cause of the stories or been a reason for the stories. So I started researching the old YWCA, that house that they had knocked down. And when I went through that building, I could find no reason. There was no deaths associated with that old house. There was no cool stories with the old house. So I was going, this makes no sense. And then I had one of those aha moments going, they knocked down two houses when they built the new YWCA. The one that had been the original YWCA, and then when they expanded further south, a second house had been knocked down. So I decided to go look into that second house. And that house was the home of Dr. Robert Chesney McClure, the first permanent dentist here in Lethbridge. Dr. McClure had been ill for years, and not only was he ill, he actually died in his home, and the funeral was held from his home. So I decided to, to test my theory, and I found a picture of Dr. McClure, and I met again with the YWCA staff, and I said, hey, anybody know who this guy is? And they looked at the picture and said, that's our ghost. I'm like, well, he seemed like a very nice guy, so if he is your ghost, he should have no problems. Well, I all counts, he was kind. I do wonder, though, if he roams at night checking people's teeth, because that'd be kind of creepy. But other than that, I think if Dr. McClure is at the YWCA, everything should be okay. Now, just like hospitals, another building that seems to get a lot of ghost stories, and it's not surprising, are schools. You put a lot of impressionable kids into a school, you're going to get stories. And in 1962, word spread like wildfire throughout the children of Lethbridge that there was a ghost at Fleetwood School. Now, Fleetwood School was the old building that's been since replaced by Fleetwood Bodden. The kids had even named the ghost. They called it the Blue Ghost. And kids reported seeing a blue light shimmering above the old school. It was even claimed that kids had been brave enough to throw rocks at the ghost, but that the ghost had thrown rocks back at them. And it was rumored among the children of Lethbridge that two children were in hospital because of the ghost. The story became big enough and well enough known that the Lethbridge Herald decided to send a reporter and a photographer to investigate and try to figure out what was happening. So as the reporter and photographer were walking there on 9th Avenue, all of a sudden, they were startled to hear a voice behind them. They realized it was a man calling for his dog. After they got over that initial fear, they actually turned to the school and saw a blue light appearing, and a blue light shimmered above Fleetwood School. The reporter was brave enough to call out, who are you and what are you doing? 
when both he and the photographer started to chuckle as they realized it was actually the reflection of the moon creating a reflection on the old school. On that night, at least, it was only the moon, but for months, the children of Lethbridge were frightened by the blue ghost of Fleetwood. We'll move now to actually some mounted police stories. These were written up in the 1920s by a mounted police officer who would not give his real name, but these were reported. And there are stories from both the Big Bend Post and the standoff detachment. We'll start with Big Bend. Big Bend was about 45 miles south of Fort McLeod. And on one January, a very cold January, that detachment was staffed by a corporal and two constables. But they were joined that day by a sergeant and two constables who were moving to another detachment. But they got to Big Bend and decided to spend the night there. Now, it was an incredibly cold January. So rather than sleeping in separate quarters, all six of the men decided to bunk down on the floor near the stove. In the middle of the night, one of the corporals woke up. He heard a horse approaching the building. He could hear the harness. He could hear the stamping of the feet. And as the horse approached, he heard it stop. He heard a rider get off and walk along the porch, come up to the door and knock on the door. So he called out, come in. No one entered the building. Once again, he heard three knocks, called out again, please come in. That woke up another one of the constables who asked what he was doing. And he said, I'm trying to let the man come in, but he won't. After the third knock, when nobody came in, the two men jumped up, went outside to have a look around, but they realized there was no man and no horse to be found. They decided to try to get back to sleep the best they could. The next morning, when they told the story to everybody else, the other men were laughing and joking about them. So they all decided to go outside and as they were looking around, they looked around the snow around the cabin and realized there were no footprints in the snow and that no signs of any horse had approached in the night. The sergeant actually let them know that he had often heard such stories of that detachment and he told them don't scoff at what you heard. And he was not surprised at all when a month later transfers were put in by the corporal and both the constables to leave the Big Bend detachment. It also was said that the scout quarters at Standoff were also haunted. One of the visitors from Lethbridge went out to Standoff to join the other mounted police there. And they were sitting out after their meal enjoying cigars in front of the cabin when they looked across at the old empty scout quarters. And they saw smoke coming up from the chimney and light emanating from the building. Now that building had not been used in years. So they wanted to know had somebody broke in what was happening. So they walked over to the building and as they approached, the smoke disappeared. And they walked in to the building and realized that dust was covering everything, including the stove. And when they walked over to the stove, it was cold to the touch. No fire had been lit in it. They also felt as if cold water was being poured down their backs. They felt it was incredibly cold and miserable place. So they walked out of the building, walked back to their chairs in front of the cabin, sat down to enjoy the evening, and as they looked back at the empty scout quarters, once again, there was smoke coming from the chimney and lights appearing in the building. This time they decided to try to sneak as quietly as they could to the building. But as they approached, once again, the smoke disappeared and the lights were gone. They walked back again to the cabin, looked back. Once again, there was smoke to be seen. This time they didn't even bother trying to find if they could catch who was in the building.
Now, as creeped out as those might make you, the creepiest stories I've been told are always baby stories. And I have one baby story from Granham I'd like to start with. In 1903, a family bought a farm by Granham that had been homesteaded by another family. For years, people who came to visit the farm would ask the mother to attend to the crying baby. She would repeatedly have to tell visitors there was no baby in the house. This happened for years. Finally, she asked her husband to go and speak to the family who had previously lived in the house. He did, and he asked them, did you ever lose a child while you were living there on the farm? And they said yes, and as there had been no cemetery at the time, they had buried the little baby out by the bushes behind the property. The father asked them if they would agree to have the baby moved to the new cemetery, and the family agreed. The little baby's grave was dug up and properly transported to the new cemetery, and the crying was never heard again. I'll, find, I'll stop with one more story of a baby. This one is from St. Patrick's Cemetery and is one of my favorite stories from Lethbridge. In St. Patrick's Cemetery, which is the cemetery on the north side, there is an area on the side of the coulee where unbaptized babies were buried. Unfortunately, the records weren't well kept for that area. A mum's little baby died and she buried her little girl in that area but couldn't afford a headstone. Over the years, she saved up for a monument and when she finally had enough money, she arranged with a monument maker to go down the coulee and to set up the headstone. She and the monument maker placed the headstone where she believed her baby was buried. As they were preparing to leave and climb up the coulee, they both heard a sweet voice come over the wind. Mommy, I'm over here. She and the monument maker looked at each other and realized they had both heard the same voice. So they turned around and went back down the coulee and moved the headstone to the place where the voice was coming from. Now, as they were preparing to leave as quickly as they could, they heard the same sweet voice come over the wind. Thank you, mummy. And I think that's a good place to stop and see if there's any questions. Okay. Um, thank you, Belinda. That, that was fun. So um, we have um, several comments. I haven't seen any questions yet, so start asking questions, folks. Um, there is um, a comment from Ghost Hunt Alberta. I don't know if you're familiar with that group or that person. Um, they said we would love to get into one of these places to investigate. Now, you do ghost story. Do you do ghost story walks? I have done ghost story walks. I definitely do. I'm very respectful of the buildings, though. I mean, being a historian, certainly historical buildings. Um, but I don't own any of the buildings I've talked about, so they'd have to contact the owners. Uh, but we certainly have the research on the buildings, and I certainly have the ghost stories collected. Okay. Um, Don McBride really likes, really liked this talk. Um, and then um, somebody else says, oh, wow, ghost stories about the university. Really like that. Um, then there is, let me just see, Leona Jacobs, um, re-UVL library ghost. There was a work person who died on the job while the building was being built. Yes, an electrician was unfortunately killed during that time. Wow. Okay. Um, our first question from Knud Peterson. Any ghost stories involving the gold mine, mining and coal banks? 
There are a few ghost stories sort of related. Uh, certainly there has been some murders in some of our coal mines, and there are some stories attached to the River Valley and with Nicholas Sharon, uh, but not specifically to the coal mines, like not inside the mines, but around the mines we certainly have some. Not surprisingly, the high-level bridge has some as well. I only I have about 110 pages of collected ghost stories of Southern Alberta, and I think you got like 10 pages, so I certainly didn't do all of them. Mark Goodall, and I'm just going to bring up the uh, the slide that he's talking about. Um, I saw a face in the lawn of that cemetery, and he <laughs> he would like to see that slide again. And indeed, it does look like there's a little face in there. I don't know if you see that, Belinda. There actually is. That's why I took that particular photograph which I took from Scenic Drive. Don't tell anybody I stopped on Scenic Drive to take a photograph. Um, this was a few years ago, and this was actually vandalism in the cemetery. But it was the, I hate to say because vandalism is, of course, not good, but it was the happiest vandalism. Somebody used a type of herbicide or something and drew a happy face stick figure onto the side of the coolie there in the cemetery. And that would have been about eight years ago. Um, and so that's the picture. It's the only picture I actually have of that side of the cemetery but yes there is a face there that somebody carved and put into the side of that coulee. Liberty asks what do you make of the symbolic relationship between people and ghosts in many of these stories? Ah I've looked into that a little bit not as much as I would like to. Oh, sorry my phone is making weird noises now. Uh, one of the things I find fascinating is that everything we attribute to ghosts today 500 years ago european cultures might have called fairies and so it's always been interesting that we have similar stories but how we account for them is different and so i think there is a need as i said storytelling is such a huge part of any culture so i think there is a need to tell these stories and we're trying to find meaning um you know when i when i look more deeply into it um certainly you know we all know you know um how our brain can fool us you know, we have sleight of eye and we have all these things that we can fill things in. And so I think there is something more to the storytelling where we're trying to solve issues and problems and try to figure things out. Um, so that's why I never say whether ghosts exist or not, because to me, that's not the point. To me, it's the stories. But I also look into sometimes whether stories are um, actual ghost stories or if they're um, uh, more fiction than that. One of my favorite is urban legend is the high-level bridge ghost story. The high-level bridge ghost story, if you want to see the ghost, you have to come on a full moon and stand in the exact right place. And no story tells you what the exact right place is. So I guess you have to come every full moon and try like 365 places over, you know, 30 years. Um, and that one means it's probably an urban legend. And I, I know where, I think where I know how that story got created. So I do sometimes delve into the creation of the stories because like I said, the stories are part of our community. Um, and to me, there's that. And then there's also, like I said early on, I could tell you a story and if you know the community, you would understand it better. Some of my favorite ghost stories, which I didn't delve into are the Crow's Nest Pass. The Crow's Nest Pass where a lot of people have an Eastern European background historically. A lot of the ghost stories there is the expectation that somebody will walk, that you will see somebody between their death and their funeral is very common in those stories. And it's just, people are like, yeah, of course, like he came to visit me before we buried him. Um, so the stories seem very much a, a part of that town's culture. 
And so I love looking into that. I'm not an expert at that in any means, but I certainly know that ghost stories are more than just stories. Lovely. Uh, Sherry Hunt, uh, wondering if you have a book planned on this subject. I think most people know I have 18 books I'm working on at present. <laughs> and that is certainly one. I have the rough draft. To me, the hardest part is sitting down and editing it. So I do have the collective stories of about 25 Southern Alberta communities. Um, not every story, of course, but I do have it. And when I get the time to actually take it and edit it, yes, there is a book planned. Uh, don't hold me to it because I just made a deal to write another book this fall as well. Wow. Um, back to Ghost Hunt Alberta. We will be in touch about the research. Thank you for the great stories. Thank you. Leona Jacobs, is it your impression that ghosts reveal themselves selectively to particular people? And if so, what makes people receptive to ghosts? Oh, there's a lot in that because I don't know if it's so much selective people. I do know for myself, it's selective times of years. I can write ghost stories in the middle of July and never freak myself out. When I tell ghost stories late at night on Halloween, I don't sleep at night. So I think there's also something our, we and our ancestors understood about telling ghost stories You know, as the evenings get longer. Um, when you look at something even like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, that's a Christmas ghost story. And in British tradition, you tell ghost stories at Christmas, right? When the night was the longest, you turn to ghost stories. So I think all of us can be susceptible at certain times of year because, of course, it builds into the ambiance. Um, but I also think that the ghost stories I tend to get told, I get from people who believe and don't believe. And you'll also notice that sometimes I use people's names and sometimes I don't because some of the best ghost stories are the people who are like, I don't believe in ghosts at all, but I can't explain this. and I'm going to tell it to you. And these are people you wouldn't think are susceptible at all. So I don't know if it's so much that people like that there's different, you know, it only happens to certain people, but I do know that certain people are more willing to tell their stories and to tell them with their names attached. And I think that might be some of the reasons we think it's only from certain types of people, because there are other people who will only tell me with complete anonymity and with, you know, like they almost tell it in an embarrassed fashion. Um, our next question is Bev Mundell. What kind of ghost stories do you tell on your Halloween tours? Ah, well, I haven't done those for a while, um, but it depends where I'm at. Um, when I do the downtown, I tell the downtown ghost stories. I've also done ones where I've done ones from right across Alberta, southern Alberta. So I, like I said, the nice thing about having all these different stories is I can pick and choose which ones I want to tell. Uh, but the best stories, of course, are when you're on the location. So if you're standing in front of a building, so for the downtown, you could do hours of ghost stories and actually be right there. Um, those are the ones that I, I love the best. Uh, the one place I don't tell ghost stories is in the cemeteries because the cemeteries are not about ghosts, um, usually. Uh, they're about the lives of the biographies of real people. So I tell ghost stories everywhere but cemeteries, generally. Okay, and um, given that you're in City Hall right now, I believe, any ghost stories about City Hall or in City Hall? Not with this building. Certainly some of the older buildings where City Hall has been. Uh, I don't think people realize that the old fire hall on 2nd Avenue South was City Hall for a while, and that building has stories. That building also has legends. 
Uh, one of my favorite tours that I was on was a tour where a person gave completely wrong history of the building, uh, but it was fascinating. It was just completely wrong. Um, but with the old jail cells in the building, uh, there's certainly stories attached to it. And the old Chinook Club that used to be uh, a next city hall had stories. Uh, not so much here. One of the stories, one of the tours I'd like to actually do at City Hall is scandals of Lethbridge's history, because I think that is better applied to City Hall than ghost stories. So that's another collection of stories I have of scandals of all sorts of political stuff. Sounds not like, my own scandals. Sounds like we need to get you back for that one. <laughs> um, Laurie Schultz. Oh, Liberty says thank you. Um, Laurie Schultz, years ago, the Scots magazine wrote a story of ghosts or heart-wrenching energy being presented in spots where great battles took place. Are you aware of such reports? You know, I honestly believe, because I study historic buildings, and I honestly believe that buildings and sites have a emotional power. So I don't know how that connection is there, but they certainly are. There's a reason we say, I love this building or this place bothers me. I think there is something about it. I certainly don't know what the science would be behind that or what the reality would be behind that. But I think that we are attuned to places in those different ways. Um, and so I know I've seen some of that research about, you know, if you go to a site, you can tell good things or bad things that have happened there. And so I, I, I can see where that is coming from. But like I said, I, I don't know. I haven't done any research on it, but like I said, there's a reason I like certain buildings and places, and I imagine that's not just me. Uh, Bev Mandel just mentioned that I failed to uh, read out Henning's comment, so my apologies, <laughs> Henning. Um, Henning asks if Belinda is being visited by ghosts, as the brightness here is fluctuating. Your brightness on the screen sometimes fluctuates, so I think that's what he's referring to. Maybe that's a ghost. You know, I will tell you that um, certain cultures see ghosts very different. And my one friend, Blanche, who is Blackfoot, is actually angry at me quite often at this time of year when I tell ghost stories, because in her opinion, that when you tell ghost stories, you create ghosts. And that it's actually, you can't always handle the power that you create when you tell ghost stories. Um, and so again, I don't know if people are believers or non-believers, but I certainly know in some cultures, I would be warned about what I'm doing. Okay. Um Catherine Brewer, would you be willing to go out on an investigation into some of these stories? Uh, give me a call. We can see. Uh, probably not for the next couple of months because I do have a budget coming up. So but give me a call and we can see what might work. Mary Shilling. Oh, sorry. Terry Shillington. I didn't hear you mention any churches. Do you have any church ghost stories? There actually is. There's um, stories attached to Southminster, um, and it, that might be because um, the old uh, hall that used to be beside Southminster was actually used as an emergency hospital during the 1918 epidemic. Uh, so it may not be the, the uh, church, but the building that was attached to it. So there are stories attached to Southminster and a few other churches. Uh, as I said, I didn't, I no way could I tell you everyone, even in Lethbridge, but I have picked up a few stories from churches and the other one is actually it used to be a church it's the southern all care manor down by the lethbridge herald uh, what people don't seem to realize is and i'd i'd love to do a scan of that building inside that building is the original 1886 presbyterian church in lethbridge so that building even though it's a concrete building 
has a part that is 130 years old. And there are good ghost stories attached to that, um, that building as well. And it's hard to know what the ghost stories, do they go back to the church use, to the uh, other uses? But that building certainly has ghost stories attached as well. Laurie Schultz, it has been said that in times past, people experienced the presence of those who had passed and simply accepted this as part of life. In Western culture, this is rejected. Can you comment? I have heard that as well, especially for children. They say children are much more open to things than adults are. And I've heard a lot of stories about when a grandparent has passed, they visit a grandchild. Uh, I've even heard stories that um, invisible friends that your you know, children might have may actually be ghosts as well. And that is children grow up and they're told not to believe it. That's why those invisible friends disappear. I did have a parent really worried about that when I explained that that was one of the theories uh, because she explained to me that her daughter's invisible friend lives in the oven and has glowing red eyes. I, I wasn't sure how to respond to that one. It's one of the creepier ones I've been told about a childhood invisible friend. So there are certainly stories about that and there are a lot of cultures and again, uh, there is a, a whole thing I didn't even go into about how different cultures view ghost stories, but there certainly is a belief about ghosts um, coming back after they passed away. And one of the things we see, and there, it's in British tradition, it's in others, one of the things that has happened to ghost stories is ghosts have become less, have, their jobs have changed. Ghosts used to come back to tell you I was killed incorrectly, here's where the will is, here's where the treasure is. Ghosts had purpose. And it kind of saddens me if ghosts now are just like moving stuff in your house. Like, so what ghosts can do have changed. And a lot of that is coming back to you know, right wrongs and things like that historically. And some of that is coming to leave messages. So certainly I've, I've read some of that stuff. And I mean, if I could create the world of ghosts, I would like ghosts to have a purpose, not just be there because they're stuck. Our next question comes from Liberty. Do the spiritual and religious beliefs of the tellers slash experiences factor into the ghost stories? From what I've been able to figure out, yes, it does. As I said, if you know a community, the ghost stories are different. And the ghost stories I get from, I, I explained a little bit pros this past, but the ghost stories I tend to get from more strong LDS communities are also different. The ghost stories I tend to get from Catholic communities. So there certainly are. I'm not, like I said, I'm not an expert in any way in any of this, but just from having heard enough of them, to me, there seems to be differences. It would be an interesting study for, you know, an anthropologist or a folklorist or somebody to really look into, because it does seem that different groups tell stories differently. Okay. Um, an earlier question by Catherine Brewer, and I'll just uh, refresh you. Would you be willing to go out on an investigation into some of these stories? Um, and now Catherine Brewer comments on that question. I asked that question because I'm the investigator with Ghost Hunt Alberta. Okay, that makes a little more sense. Yeah. Um, Kurt Peterson, are there any red light districts ghost stories you can tell to the public? <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't think I ever... I'm not in Lethbridge. There's certainly um, out of the Crowsness Pass. There was a madam killed there, and she has said to be to um, uh, be haunting certain areas. So in the Crow's Nest Pass, I certainly know that there are red light stories. In Lethbridge, I've never come across any specifically related to the red light stories. 
I'd love to. Ghost Hunt Alberta so agree with the sadness of the changes in people's views uh, or I'll start again. So, so agree with the sadness of the changes in people's views, viewpoints on ghosts. They still have purpose and are always telling us their messages and stories. Um, we, I don't see any more questions. Somebody might be typing. There's always a little bit of a delay. Um, do you have another story for us? Uh, well, let, me, oh, let me tell you the high level bridge one. Since I referenced it, let me tell you it. And then we'll um, and we'll see. So not surprisingly, considering the number of people who have died on the high level bridge, that there would be a ghost story attached to it. What people might be surprised, though, is the ghost story attached to the high level bridge is actually a child. And it is said that a young boy was dared to ride his bicycle across the high level bridge, not in the bridge, but on the rail beside the bridge. He took the dare and one night he set off across the bridge, but halfway across he fell. And it said that he fell so fast and so hard that when they got down under the bridge, neither he nor his bike could be found. The claim is that he is still attempting to finish that ride. And as I said, if you go on a full moon, which Saturday is, and you stand in the right place, you can look across the bridge and see him riding his bike. But as he gets towards the middle part of the bridge, he simply disappears. Now, as I said, I think that is an urban legend, not a ghost story for two factors. One, in the 1940s, a little seven-year-old boy did die crossing the bridge. He was crossing the bridge with a bunch of friends, and he was so small, he actually slipped through the ties, and he was killed that way. And in the 1920s, we had a daredevil in Lethbridge who did ride his bicycle across the high-level bridge on the rail, but he survived. He made it across, and he came back. Now, being a daredevil, he did die of a car crash like two years later. So, I mean, daredevils tend not to live forever, but he did survive, and I think somehow... In the telling, those two stories of the child dying on the bridge and the man biking across over decades somehow got mixed into a story. Um, so I think that's what happened there. Um, and I'll tell you one more because this one just makes me fun. In the central area of Cottonwood Park, now Cottonwood is the one on the west side, the far south end of the west side. People describe it as if there's, in the real wooded area, there's a stretch of trail of approximately 300 meters in length where there's nothing living. Throughout most of the park, it's normal to hear birds, rustling of trees, the grass moving, other park noises. However, in this area, in the middle of the park, it is said to be silent. No birds are heard, no sounds exist. And people describe the feeling, say it's just as if everything is dead. Now, people don't like to hike in that area of the park. They hurry through as quickly as they can without stopping. So what accounts for this dead zone? Is it all in the mind? Does it exist? Take a walk and find out for yourself. Excellent. Um, we have a question by, from uh, Liberty. Are there any elements that you think are negative to ghost story folklore culture? Um, I think just in general, I don't like anybody who takes advantage of people, right? Like, so I mean, if, if you're telling ghost stories, I try to do it in a lighthearted way. I t you can believe or not as you want to. But just to, you know, I don't make money off any of this. I don't do any of that. And that's where I always get into issues is where it's, it, as long as it's done in a upbeat, positive way as stories of the community and nobody gets hurt or by it. That would be the only thing for me. Excellent. Um, 
Cherry Hunt, uh, do you want to come social distanced trick-or-treating with me, Belinda? <laughs> I'll talk to you offline, Cherry. We can see. Kurt <laughs> uh, Peterson, the university started at the college. Are there any ghost stories related to the college and to that relationship? Not specifically around the U of L college relationship. I do have one or two ghost stories from the college. They're not in my mind right now. I know I have them written down somewhere. But the university has been much better at, for me, finding ghost stories than the college has. I have no doubt there are stories at the college. I just haven't been able to collect a lot of them. Uh, as I said about schools, wherever you put a bunch of young people in a pressure situation, I will guarantee ghost stories will exist or be created. Um, and I, I will say created because one of my favorite stories is actually Galbraith School. The kids were telling me about um, their principal who went crazy, murdered his entire family and then killed himself. Now, if you know the history of Galbraith School, that has never happened to any principal. Uh, they had a principal die at Passchendaele in First World War. The next two principals were women. <laughs> like It's like, no, it never happened. So um, it's, it, you always have to be careful um, when you get ghost stories because especially when they come out of schools and places because storytelling is part of our you know reason for being humans but story creating is also part of our reason for being humans and i know i disappoint some of the kids sometimes when i'm like yeah you know that just never happened no principal at galbraith ever did that right so that brings us to the end of the questions but i think i'll start with katherine brewer by saying thank you for all your work that you have put into this research and to your research which seems fitting having what you just said um bev Mundell, thank you for all your historical research um laurie schultz thank you belinda for a fascinating presentation Liberty, thank you, like all the other comments. Um, before I uh, end the live stream, do you have some take home message for us? Well, one, if you have stories that I don't have collected, please contact me. I'd love to collect your stories. You can always email them to me or get them to me in other ways. And two, I hope everyone has an amazing Halloween. Because, like I said, we haven't been doing these things for thousands of years without purpose. They are part of our culture and part of who we are. So go out, have some fun, safely distance, wear your mask, do everything you need to. But I hope you have a spooky Halloween, too. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. And for the folks, um, next week we have Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society, Societies, Radical Love at the Boundaries of Law. Um, I hope you'll join us for that next week, Thursday, and um, we'll see you then. Thanks, everybody.